scripture reading is from Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's a great joy to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Iverson. I'm joined by my wife, Maggie, over here, and our six daughters. Um, we're really delighted to be uh, newest, I guess, some of the newest uh, members on your support team and uh, to be partnered with your church in the work of the Lord around the world. What an exciting vision you have as a church. What an exciting uh, role we get to, we get to take in, in being on the front lines of seeing what God is doing around the world. So we're grateful for you. We're thankful for you. Um, it's a joy to be here with you this morning and to look at God's word together <clears throat> in Hebrews 11. Um, would you bow your heads and pray with me now as we uh, ask the Lord to, to use this time in our hearts. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken and that you've spoken thousands of years ago and it is still good for us today. We thank you that just as, your, um, just as this, the rain doesn't come to the earth and return to heaven without having accomplished its purposes, your word doesn't go forth from your mouth without accomplishing its purposes in our lives and in this world. We pray even this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us have the eyes of faith to see the beauty of Jesus and his glory. May our hearts turn towards him in repentance and faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you guys. Um, for my oldest daughter's Christmas present this year, my wife Maggie bought her a, a map, and she's 14 years old. She received this uh, neat world map, and it's not an ordinary world map. It's, a kind of, it's about this big. It's, a, it's the kind of world map that you scratch off the different countries that you've been to on the world map, and they have a, a new color to them than the rest of the pattern on the map, and you slowly, as you work through the different countries that you visit, you know, reveal more and more of the, the picture of the world. Um, she has that on her wall, and I think as she was going through it, she scratched off 14 different countries. It's incredible. Our, 
what this revealed, though, about our family and about my daughter's life, the last 14 years of her life, is that there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of movement in her life. You know, it's not just the 14 countries. I tried to count all these, but she's changed schools four times. She's called four or five, I'm sorry, five or six houses or apartments home. She's been deported from a place that she calls home. She's lived a rather nomadic life for months on end, sleeping on other people's floors and couches and pull-out couches all over the world. Some of you hear that and you think, well, that's cool. You know, that sounds exciting. It's a life of adventure, life of excitement. It's the life of a missionary kid. And yes, there's some real excitement. There's real adventure, the newness, newness of experiences that our kids get to, get to have. There's also a cost, isn't there? There's real cost, and, and this comes out frequently in my conversations with my daughter. The other side of the story is that her life is filled with uncertainty about her future. She doesn't know where she's going to live. Many evenings of tears and, and even anger and questions about God's love and provision for us. Most distressing, uh, deep sense of up uprootedness that she experienced. You're pulled out of one life. You're placed in another, uprooted from here, rooted over there, again and again, over and over again. It's, it's disorienting for kids. It's disorienting for me, for my wife. How much uh, these, these, these six sweet girls that the Lord has given us, how disorienting that is for them. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt that the overwhelmedness of your circumstances around you, the constant changing of the world around you, giving you this sense of, I don't belong here. I'm made for something else. This isn't my home. Where is my home? When will we find rootedness? When do we arrive at that uh, unflappable, is that a word, the unflappable a posture of strength and faith and resolve that we see in Hebrews 11 to take the, the circumstances that come at us like bugs on a windshield. It doesn't bother us. doesn't affect us. Where do we get that? How do we upgrade to the Abrahamic level of faith and confidence in God's promises? And that's what we're looking at this morning in this chapter. Um, chapter 11, you heard last week the first, the first part of the chapter uh, the second part today is really focusing on, uh, on, on Abraham, who receives the most number of verses in this chapter. He's, he's by many, you know, the, he's the father of faith of the Christian religion. He's also the father of faith of two more major world religions, Islam and, and Judaism, making up over half the world. Over half the world considers Abraham the father of their faith. It's incredible to think about why. What, what did, all, he, all he had to do was have a baby, if you think about it. Why, why him? Why, what was so significant about his life? So the question that we have before us today is, do you want to grow? Do you want to be unflappable in the face of the difficulties, the sufferings, the changes, the uncertainty of future that this life brings to us? And what this text helps us see is that like Abraham, God invites you to live a life of faith. He invites you, as he invites Abraham, to step out of your comfort zone, to follow him in faith. And the three things that we're going to see in this text about how, as we do that, as we follow God, as we hear this invitation and go follow God, our faith will grow and how God will use that in our lives. The first thing I want you to see is in, is in verse 8. Um, 
And, and it's really just it's simple. You need to obey the call of God. He calls you, and you need to obey that call and go. Uh, in the fluctuations of our ministry life, I've often used this verse, referenced this verse to describe how I feel all the time. We're waiting for years for our next missions assignment. It's been three years for us. And what I'm learning is that this call that God issues to Abraham, that he calls him to, isn't primarily about the location, but it's about the person to whom he's called. And he's called to God. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. We're told this story is in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 through 25 is roughly the, what we're covering in these few verses. It's summarizing the life of Abraham in, in a few verses. But Genesis 12 to 25. In, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old. He's living with his parents. He's, he's established himself. He has a community, presumably. He's, a, he's, he's established wealth and resources. He doesn't have any kids. But God comes to him, and he calls him out of his neighborhood, out of his father's household, out of his security, out of his rootedness, even his, own, his father's religion. He calls him out of those things. And all God says in Genesis 12 is get out. That's all he says is get out. He doesn't say where to. He says get out. John Calvin, a theologian, is commenting on this passage. And he says this. He says, this is what God is in effect saying. I command you to go forth with closed eyes. And I forbid you to inquire where I'm about to lead you until having renounced your country, you shall be given wholly to me. I really like that description. God calls him, calls him out with closed eyes. Abraham was asked to believe entirely in the dark. Entirely in the dark. And so Abraham leaves behind the familiar, sets out with closed eyes, not knowing where, not knowing much about God, not knowing how God was fulfilled these promises to him, but he knew the one. He knew God had called him. And that God had made these promises to him. What were those promises? There's a promise of land, right? God promised him this land that he would inhabit. There's a promise of offspring and that Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth through his offspring. But what happens next as soon as Abraham starts following God? Well, immediately in chapter 12 of Genesis, right after he left everything, there's this huge famine. He has to, you know, get deported to Egypt or he flees to Egypt uh, one thing after another, crisis after crisis in Abraham's life. It's anything but stable. He wanders his entire life. And Abraham's, Abraham ends up dying years later, going to the grave. He's never had that. The only land he owns is a small patch of land that he bought to bury his wife Sarah in. That's the only land he owns. But he's clutching furiously to the, to the divine promissory notes that God has said, I will give you this land doesn't have anything. Furthermore, God promises him a son. He's 75 years old. And it's not until he's 100 years old, and his wife is somewhere around that age as well, that this son is born. And then God tells him what? Go kill your son. Go kill your son. What is God doing to Abraham with this crazy call 
this, how is he leading him into this? What is he doing? Is this, is he playing with him? See, what God is doing here is he's creating the conditions for a vibrant and beautiful faith to grow in the heart of Abraham. What do I mean by that? George Michael said, you gotta have faith. But what is faith? Faith is applying what you already know about God to what you don't know about life. The author Dallas Willard says, confidence grounded in reality. In other words, faith sees the reality of the unseen, but it acts because it, because it believes it's real, because God is real. Last week, you had a great definition of faith from Hebrews 11. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. See, according to Hebrews 11, faith is not contrary to reason. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's reasonable. It's reasonable because it's based on the character of God and his promises. Faith is rooted in something that's unflappable, in someone that's unflappable. Don't you know, dear friends, faith in God doesn't grow in the soil of security, of success, and of safety. Faith grows in the fertile soil of disruption, disorientation, and even disaster, doesn't it? How many times do you hear testimonies in church of people who, who, who come to faith in Christ for the first time and they get up and they share their story how many times do you hear them say, I was so successful and everything was going great for me and that's when I met God? Is that how the story usually goes? Or my life was working out, I, I married a model and I'm, I'm making you know, seven figures a year and then I met God. No, it's not usually how the story works, right? God doesn't meet you in the fast lane. He meets you in the wrecked lane. <laughs> he meets you to the side of the road, Right? When everything, all your plans start to crumble. When the things that you had lined up for yourself begin to disintegrate. He meets you in the place of brokenness, in the place of humility, in the place of deprivation. See, friends, he meets you when you don't have a home and when you're wandering. And, it's, it, it, and, and what, what the life of Abraham shows us is that it's in that gap of fulfillment and promise. It's, it's in the gap between fulfillment and promise that you begin to see what faith really is. He meets you there in order to, in order to show you and, and test you and, and train you in faith. See, the, it's the wandering and it's the place when your life gets derailed, where things are just not working out as planned, that God actually is calling you to go, to get out, and to follow him. And he's using those things to get your attention. Because if you didn't have those things in your life, you wouldn't be paying attention to your faith, would you? You wouldn't be noticing God working. When my oldest daughter feels her life is in turmoil because of the lack of stability and the disorientation that she, she's experiencing, the qu constant question that runs on loop ad infinitum in her mind is, does God love me? Does God love me? She knows one thing is true that she's heard her dad preach about and talk about and tell her over and over again, but the, the fact remains or the, the circumstances in her life remains that she, that she sees something else. 
Does God love? And that's what that gap does for us, doesn't it? That gap between what we know to be true and what we see to be real in front of us, the circumstances of our lives, it creates this wonder of, in our hearts, does God love me? Questioning, does he care for me when all these things are falling apart? And it's when we have this gap between what we know to be true and what we see with our eyes that faith begins to blossom. And faith is only evident in the gap. Abraham, go, I will give you a land. And Abraham lives the rest of his life, never receiving the land. Abraham, I will give you a son. And our text says he was as good as dead. But then God gives him a son and says, now go kill your son. So the question for us this morning is, will you trust God in the dark? Will you trust that God is in fact benevolent towards you even when the evidence is mounted against you? Will you see him working even in the dark? See, this is how faith is measured. It's the gap. It's the discrepancy between what is true and what is seen. If you ever journey to Cairo, Egypt, in the shadow of the Pharaoh's graveyard, there's a a hidden graveyard of missionaries who gave their lives to serving the gospel in Egypt. And one one of the tombstones, the name reads, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden was a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth. His parents had everything, and everything was given to Borden. But he converted to Jesus. He rejected his life of ease, and he gave away almost all of his wealth, and he moved to Cairo to share the story of Jesus with the Muslims. After only four months of ministry in Cairo, uh, Borden contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. And his epitaph on on his tomb reads this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life as this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life as this. You see, friends, the implications of what we're talking about today can be incredibly scary, incredibly overwhelming. They can radically change the way that we live, can't they? What is God using in your life right now to call you out of into a deeper relationship with him, into a deeper reliance upon him. See, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And sometimes God puts us into that place to recognize that and to see that. Is there anything in your life that someone could point to and say, apart from that, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for this in your life? Well, what did William Borden know that propelled him to give his life in this way. And he had his eyes fixed on another city. And that's the second point from our text that I want to show you, is that we need to keep our eyes heavenward. We need to look up to our home. Look at verse 10 with me. Abraham Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. See, friends, what enabled Abraham to step out in such faith? What gave him the, the, the unflappable courage to step out in faith? It's not this blind faith. It's not that it's wishful thinking. His faith was informed and it was rooted in the character of God. But what was he after? What was he pursuing? The the text says that he was after the city of God. He was looking towards the city of God. If you look at his life with, with earthly eyes, you see a landless, childless nomad without purpose. But if you look at his life with eyes of faith, the way God sees it, you see a life lived on a trajectory towards greatness. See, Abraham Abraham saw something very clearly with the eyes of faith. He saw the fulfillment of the promise. Look at verse 13. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Abraham and the fathers and mothers of our faith saw past the struggles. They saw through the wandering. They saw beyond this world and what it offers us in the immediate circumstances of their life. And they looked to the fulfillment of the promise. They looked to the city that actually has foundations. One of the great challenges for, for the Christian life today is to be heavenly minded in a world that's so inwardly focused. You and I live in the most self-absorbed, self-indulgent, self-gratifying culture in the world. Everything in your world bends towards you. And the great deception that this produces in you is a false assurance that in the accumulation of more, that in the rise to the top, you are creating something that lasts, something that will be eternal. And the, great, and the author of Hebrews is saying that, that there is a city, actually, that does have foundations, that has a foundation. It's a, it's a foundationless world, in other words. But there is a city that will last and it's not the one that you're giving your life to. All these things that we anchor our hope on, that we treat as if they're meant to last, won't last. They won't last. We need to anchor our hope in God, in the city that he calls us to. What do I mean by that? A uh, good illustration for this. My kids and I just finished reading the, the novel The Road by Cormac McCarthy. It's one of my favorites. And in the story of, of this, this novel, it's the, it's the story of a father and his son struggling to survive as they wander through a post-apocalyptic, dystopian future America. And McCarthy never says what happened to planet Earth, but whatever it was, it killed most humans, animals, stripped the world of all its foundations. There's no more governments, no more safety, no more currency, no more society. Everything's gone. The world as we know it has crumbled. Plants no longer grow from the ground. Only food is canned goods and you know, cans of Spam and beans and things that were left over from before the apocalypse. And uh, it's a great story. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, the only survivors... Um, that are alive are the ones that are marauding around, yeah, evil people seeking to, to kill others and, and they're cannibals. And it it's, might be a little too graphic for little kids. Um, my wife is a little upset that I read it with our littlest, but it's still a good story. Um, but, but it begins to explore the relationship between the father and his son and, and their love through this uh, dystopian future. But the novel is also a sort of thought experiment for us. McCarthy, who's, who's writing as an atheist, is asking this question, which I think is real similar to the question the author of Hebrews is suggesting here. What happens to your life when you take away all the things that you look to now for security, for meaning, for hope, for joy? What happens to your, your heart? What happens to your joy? What happens to your faith when the rug is pulled out from under you, when the floor drops out? What's, there left, what's, what's left to catch you? What's left to hold you? What else is worth living for? Is there anything that has a foundation that we can anchor into, that we can be tethered to? See, if you haven't seen the floor fall out from under you just yet, you're probably just too young. You haven't lived long enough. Every single one of us whether it's the money we hoped will secure our future, um, whether it's the relationships that we have, our health, we know they deteriorate. They don't last. They go away. 
And so what is it that is going to catch you when the floor drops out from under you? See, the author of Hebrews is saying that if you make your immediate circumstances the measure of your worth, if your security in life, your future, your faith fluctuates with the ebbs and flows of the stock market, the ups and downs, you you are setting yourself up to be destroyed by them. You need to be to have your eyes fixed on something beyond what is immediately in front of us, looking through it to the heavenly city. And what does this look like for you and me today? Whenever we move somewhere new, I can always be sure that in her free time, I'll find my wife Maggie uh, gardening, uh, creating a, a new garden or revitalizing a dying garden or beautifying our temporary home to some degree. And being the pragmatic person that I am, I often ask her, what's the point? We're only going to be here for a little while. Uh, we're not going to you know, benefit from this very long. What's the point of doing this? What's the point of Christians caring for the world, caring for the earth, working hard at their jobs, loving their city and community if our gaze is fixed on heaven? What's the point of investing in this world as, as we see it in front of us? When asked what he would do if he knew Jesus was coming back, Tomorrow, Martin Luther famously said, I'd plant a tree. Why? C.S. Lewis famously said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. See, what's he saying? When, when your heavenly citizenship is, is, when your citizenship is in heaven, when you're longing for heaven and looking towards heaven and moving towards heaven, that will drastically empower you strengthen you, give you the wherewithal and the fortitude to engage in earthly living. See, what Maggie knows, what Luther knows, what the writer of Hebrews knows is that like every good gift from God, the gardens that we nurture, the homes that we prepare, the trees that we plant, the relationships that we pour into, the businesses that we build, the homes that we cultivate, they are not themselves the point, right? They are pointers. They are pointers to something else, something greater, When we live for them alone, we're devastated when they crumble. But God gives them to us to point us to cause our heart to long for something else, something greater. See, until you get this, until this begins to sink in for you, you'll remain rootless, aimless. But what Abraham understood was that if his soul was anchored in his money, his success, his land, his failure, if his soul was rooted in those things, those things couldn't hold his worth when they crumbled. You'd be knocked off course by just one small storm. But it was him being tethered to something not in this world, something permanent, something lasting, that gave him freedom, that gave him joy, that unleashed him as a a leader and, and grew his faith Rather than the man who is undone by his circumstances, he is a man that triumphs through his circumstances. Rather than a man who who fears the challenges when they come and the trials, he is a man with confidence and determination. Don't you want that? Don't you want that to be true about you? How do you get that? And that's really our last point. How do we get this kind of faith that we see in Abraham? Look at verse 11 with me. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. And pay attention to this next line. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful who had promised. See, friends, this is a clue to what we really need to live 
with strong, with, to grow our faith, to, to live with unflappable resolve and faith in the face of difficult circumstances in our world. The foundation of our faith isn't faith for faith's sake. It isn't our wherewithal. It isn't our own wherewithal. It isn't even the fulfillment of the promise. See that? It is the person who makes the promise. We're not anchored to the cogency of our theological propositions. We are anchored to the person who makes the promise to us. We're not we're not, uh, Mike mentioned last week, it doesn't matter how sincerely or strongly or vigilantly you believe that the ice will hold you, right? If the ice is, ice is thin and you're not, you're going to go through the ice, right? It's the object of our faith that matters. So the question is, can God hold you? Is the object of your faith strong enough? Can he be trusted to keep his word? John Calvin has a definition for faith that I really like, and it helps us here. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolent toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both given to us in our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I love that definition. Faith is seeing the benevolence of God towards you in the past and being confident that he will continue to be benevolent towards you in the future, no matter what occurs. That's a great definition of faith. So what was the particular benevolence towards Abraham and Sarah? Where were they looking to? What rooted them? Confidence in God's character and person that he would pull through, that they could trust him to hold them. We have to look at Genesis 15 to see that. Maybe you're familiar with this story. But God promised Abraham land and offspring, even when he was landless and childless, that he would make a great nation of him, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. And even said that this, this childless Abraham and his, his barren wife, Sarah, would have descendants that outnumbered the stars, greater than the, the sand on the seashore, greater than the stars. And Abraham, in chapter 15, verse 8 of, of Genesis, is praying to God, and, pray, and he says, how am I to know that this is true? He's questioning God. How am I to know that this is going to be true? How can I trust your promise, God, of benevolence towards me? And God says to him, bring me some animals. And then the story goes, uh, Abraham takes these animals. God tells him to cut the animals in half, to divide up the pieces. And Abraham goes to sleep, and God passes through the pieces. Do you remember this story? And in those days, what it meant was when two parties were making a covenant, when they were coming together to make a contract or an oath, this is what they did. This ceremony dramatized the self-imposed curse of breaking the covenant, of being unfaithful to the covenant upon yourselves. So in in effect, as you walk through these split pieces of animals, you're saying, whatever happened to those animals, may it happen to me. If I break my promise. You know, we did this as the kids. Cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That's the the same kind of thing. That you're saying curses upon yourself if you fail to keep the covenant promises. And so what's happening here, what was so interesting to see what God is doing is that God passes through the pieces himself and Abraham doesn't. And in effect, God is saying, I will take upon myself both the curses and the blessings of the covenant to withhold the curses if you are unfaithful to them 
and I will fulfill the covenant promises or I myself will die and I will also give you all the blessings of the covenant. He takes the liabilities of either party's unfaithfulness to the covenant as well as the blessings of faithfulness, you see. And he takes it upon himself. You know how the story goes. Abraham did get a son, Isaac. His descendants, Israel, did get a land, Canaan. But they remained this wandering, unfulfilled part of this promise. Their future was uncertain. Uh, They never seemed to have a certain future. They're in slavery for 400 years. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. They're in exile in another kingdom. Uh, Their kingdom was taken a number of times. Their stories were, were a mix of blessings and trials disobedience to God and and then repentance and coming back to God. That's the story of Abraham's family. But then 2,000 years after God promised to take the curses of covenant infidelity upon himself, Abraham's greater son comes onto the scene, God's son Jesus. And the New Testament says of him that like Abraham, he was homeless. But unlike Abraham and his descendants, he was faithful. And so the, the climax of this covenant that God makes with Abraham is when Jesus is placed upon the cross. And we finally get to see how God is going to both deal with the unfaithfulness and covenant infidelity of his people, but also bless them and all the families of the earth through Abraham. See, Jesus takes upon himself the curses of the covenant that Israel could not keep. And God followed through, didn't he? He kept his word to Abraham, and he's keeping his word to you and me. And that's why we said that that faith is confidence in the benevolence of God towards us. That's why you can trust God in the hard circumstances of your life. That's why you can trust God even in the the shifting sands, even as life changes, even in the hardest places. Because grace flows, doesn't it, from the hardest place of all in all of human history, the cross, right? Right? That's where grace most abundantly flows, and that's, where, and that's why we experience grace in the hard places is because we are being ministered to by God in those difficult places. If you are trusting in Jesus today, you can be 100% sure that all the promises of God are yes and amen for you. Look, at me, look with me at the last verse. Therefore, therefore, this is verse 16. The author of Hebrews writes at the end of our passage, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And dear friends, this is what you need to hear today. This could have been one of your worst weeks yet. This could have been a week filled with doubt, fear, sickness. Could have been a week where you're lashing out at your kids, breaking all your New Year's resolutions from last week, wandering from God. Or it could have been your best week. You could have been nailing it and crushing it. And everything. But the point is, it doesn't matter. Because, and you need to hear this, God is not ashamed to be called your God. Not because you have the faith of Abraham, but because you trust in him who is faithful. Because you trust in him, that's why he's not ashamed of you. Not because of what you did, but because you trust in the one who's faithful. Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all, th- all things? Don't you see, friends, faith, faith's great reward is Christ himself, and everything that God promises Jesus is yours by faith. He has proved himself faithful with his own life, 
You can trust him with yours. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, beautiful passage. Thank you for uh, the hope that we have in Christ, that our faith is rooted in him. We do pray, Lord, that those of us with struggling faith or those of us without faith in you would turn to you right now in prayer to seek you, uh, to trust you, to take you at your word, and to, and to come out, to go out and follow you. We pray for those of us who are we're strong in our faith or think, or think that we can do it on our own, Lord, that you'd bring us to a place of humility and to see that we desperately need Jesus every day in our lives. Would you strengthen our faith through this process and make us more and more like your son, our great savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.